GOB with Christy and Kathy, where we talk about writing, reading, and life in between. I'm Christy in South Florida. And I'm Kathy in South Dakota. We're two newbie writers who share our love of food, wine, and crime fiction. We have interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors on our Corks and Conversation episodes. And this season, we are adding to the fun with POV episodes, where we explore topics in quick, informative episodes. Join us for today's episode. Hi, Kathy. We're here for a Corks and Conversation episode. I'm very excited to talk with Peg Tyre. I am thrilled to have this conversation today. Uh, Peg's book, Strangers in the Night, is actually a reissue after 30 years, and I cannot wait to talk to her about that. Yeah, there's lots to talk about, um, but first, let me tell everyone a little bit about her. So Peg Tyre, the best-selling author of The Trouble with Boys, was, until recently, a senior writer at Newsweek specializing in social trends and education. She has won numerous awards, including a Pulitzer Prize, a Clarion Award, and a National Education Writers Association Award. Her book, Strangers in the Night, um, was just released for its 30th anniversary, and it's a page-turner. As described in this Kirkus Review, Turbulent romance with angry intensity on the details of big city crime and a compelling account of the deepest obsession of police officers and crime reporters staying employed and, if possible, alive. <laughs> so Peg Tyre lives in New York City with her husband, novelist Peter Blauner, and their two sons. Peg, it is so nice to have you here with us. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm having a glass of wine. What are you having, Kathy? Is anybody drinking with me today? Peg, what do you have? I'm sticking with tea in the biggest glass known to humanity. That is a huge glass. Oh, what a cute mug. It has a big hamburger on it. Like basically, I'm drinking out of a teapot, but it's <laughs> yeah, so huge. I was going to say, if you just had the little spout, <laughs> you'd be in great shape. I'm picturing yeah. a nursery rhyme happening. <laughs> I am I am indulging in, in just yeah. a little Malbec this afternoon, Christy. So right. I'm joining you, Peg. I love I love this book. I love the whole concept of a reissue, which I know Christy's going to ask you about. But I understand that you wrote Strangers in the Night while you were working as a young journalist, signed very similarly to the beat, uh, similar to Kate, your protagonist, who um, was assigned to the crime beat. And Kate, in the book, is experiencing some misogyny, both in journalism and in criminal worlds. And I'm wondering if you were, as you were writing this, experiencing some of the same things. And I asked this question from a really personal place because 30 years ago, I was starting a career in law and I was working as a young prosecutor. And so a lot of this book felt really familiar to me. My sister. You're my sister. <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> looking back on it, like, uh, it was pretty extreme. And I mean, I'm not telling you anything. If you were a prosecutor, mm -hmm. you know what we went through. You know, when the Me Too movement happened, I thought it was kind of worrisome in a way because I believe in due process as a person who believes in democracy. I believe, and I'm sure you do too, as a prosecutor, mm -hmm. you believe in due process yeah. uh, as a cornerstone of our mm -hmm of our constitutional rights, but dang, the young people had it right. They had it right. Like when they were describing what they went through, I was like, that was part of my job description. Like that was part of what I did. God. That was part of what I dealt with every day. And I really was so proud 
so proud of the young people who are just like enough of this already enough mm-hmm. enough bashing women enough yes. you know and really calling people out okay due process is a big issue okay mm-hmm. and i'm not gonna put that aside it's central to this issue but god it was such a relief to see yeah. the chapter mm-hmm. women working just the page being turned right it's like yeah. it's acceptable anymore you can't do that anymore and if you do it everyone around you is like oh you're gonna get yeah. through <laughs> right and it's great yeah I'm, pr- I'm so proud of our young women don't you find it fascinating that like if you if you told them your firsthand accounts of what you were going through 30 years ago the look on their face wait what we put up with you mean yeah and they're like really and I was like, it was so normal that it was hard to find someone that thought it wasn't, you know, and um, that's just a, I don't, I mean, not a, not quite a generation, maybe a generation. I don't know. And, and also it was really complicated because mm-hmm. some of the people who I know who had reputations as being harassers were also friends of mine and were yeah. also people who I right. really loved and respected. And mm-hmm. so it was yeah. not as, because you were so in it and so up close to it and maybe had a part of part of it was like Stockholm syndrome that like there was no other way to move forward like it was normalized and also it was very complex like I can't really see the people who were doing that as like bad people they just working under an ancient an ancient and tiresome code of behavior and that now has changed and thank god i just had someone recently say to me a a male colleague said you know i guess it goes back to that maya angelou when you know better you do better and you better damn well do better when you know better and Mm -hmm. and he's like i'm not trying to let anybody off the hook but maybe maybe people just didn't think about it and i was like well i mean that's what it's fair Right, that's fair. It, it is true. Make yeah, it, right? it yeah. is true to an extent. Yeah, but who who was advantaged by that? Like, sure, you didn't think <laughs> oh. about it because you didn't have to. Because right, right. Why would you want to? Strangely, <laughs> the guys always won. Right. Yeah. So strangely, weird, right? they always got the promotion. Mm-hmm. Like, strangely, they got paid more. Like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, you didn't have to examine it because you were winning. But now there's so many more women in the workforce, and we're so much less conditional. Right. Like. Mm-hmm. Not the same feeling. Uh, and so it's changed. And I think it's great. I'm super happy about that. But it is a little, you know, during the Me Too movement, I did feel sort of these layers of kind of, what is he, trauma? It's a little overused. But these layers of like, I just had a lot of introspection to think like, wow, that that really happened. That really went down. Yeah. And like, what did you do? You just kept on going and you tried to find people who were good people and who were safe people and who really cared about you as a person and not as a woman and were trying to hit on you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little different too, being older and seeing, I'm sure it still happens to young women quite a bit. And I would just say, if there's any young women listening to this, young women, fight the power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can do it. It's your yeah. moment. The one thing they have, we know what's happening to young women right now. We know that. But they do have more and better company on their side, which I think is, you know, there is a little more safety in numbers and knowledge, right? And I was at a cardiologist appointment yesterday with my dad, and they had the photo wall of all the cardiologists. And my daughter is entering medicine right now. And I immediately got my hackles up because I remember seeing all those photo walls when I was entering my career, and I was wrong. 65% of those cardiologists were women. And when I, you know, when I would have looked at that wall, whether it be 
you know, attorneys, journalists, doctors, whatever, whatever field it was, professors, it would have been by far a different ratio. And so I'm hoping that company Mm -hmm. of other women and other knowledgeable, um, supportive men helps this generation, even though we know they're going to go through it. I hope they have a little more. Well, I think they they just see a different picture than we did, you know, because they realize now they they see there's so much media and everything with Me Too and mm-hmm. just the hundred different channels of TV shows that show jerky guys getting beat down or something, you know. So I think I think I'm optimistic that they're going to be a step ahead. I think they're under different pressures, though. I mean, I was never under any pressure to look mm-hmm. like a star for sure. And like, well, sure. like a Kardashian, uh, yes. like no one gave a, I mean, looking good was like a, was like a problem in my world. Like you didn't really mm-hmm. want to, you wanted to look like you were ready for anything, but you know, there wasn't a sense of like the performative, the Instagram, the Instagram moment. You just weren't looking for that. There was no camera right. you everywhere. Are you taking a selfie of you everywhere? So I think they're under different pressures. But. That's true. Yeah, because I mean, I almost found it annoying if somebody was like commenting on your looks. You're like going, no, I want to be taken seriously, you know, <laughs> and nowadays it's like that's whole that's a part of the package for sure. Yeah. Anyway, well, as Kathy promised, I wanted to ask you <laughs> about um, the fact that you published this a few years ago and you wrote it a few years ago. And what made you want to reissue it now? I had the opportunity to do it. Uh, Dead Sky Publishing came to me. The editor came to me and said he loved the book and he was doing some republishing and did I want to be included? And I said, yes, please. I wrote two I wrote two books in this time and uh, they really are sort of a time capsule, part of my life that uh, I haven't revisited in a while. Like my life has rolled on and things have changed and there's been other amazing parts of my career that I'm so grateful for, but this was really fun. I had a really, it was really hard and really fun and really necessary for me to keep doing the kind of work I was doing. Like I had to have a way to sort of process it. And these books were really my way of like, part of me would just wanted to like help me become less freaked out by the stuff that was happening. And also part of me wanted to shock people and say, this is really happening. Like we have to about crime like we have to start talking about the way that people are being victimized in our city and repeatedly Mm. and over time in high crime areas and what crack is doing and getting to see that up close it was a little like covering a war that you come home from every night (laughs) like you come home at 7 30 every night from the war you know and you're just like Mm -hmm. that was a lot and uh then the next day you're back in it again and so it was really it was crazy at the time you know my friends were as in I was 30 and a lot of my friends were getting married and I'd have them for, you know, I'd have dinner with them and they'd be talking about, do the, are the napkins going to match the tablecloth and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, Oh my God. And I'd look down and I'd be like, Oh my God, there's like brains in the tread of my sneakers. Ew. And I'd be talking oh and I'd be God. like, Oh my God, like this is, you know, and I'd be freaking out because like this, this horrible thing had happened to me during the day that I of course was not discussing. And then I would look down and I would see this in my sneakers and just be like, I think I'm going to lose my mind. So it was kind of a way of trying to integrate those experiences. I wrote those books to sort of stay sane. And how did you do that? I mean, honestly, if you were coming home at 730, pretty much shell-shocked, where did you find time to write? Or was it like first thing in the morning just to get it? No, I'm not. At the time, I wasn't a morning person because I didn't have children. Uh, And also (laughs) I worked really late. So I would do it from like... 
I'd quickly have dinner and then work on it from, you know, for the th two and a half hours that I had. I didn't watch much TV. I'm a huge reader, but mm -hmm. uh, I just worked and worked. But I had already written like my daily stories. So I was like churning out quite a bit of material at that time, the likes of which, I mean, my pro productivity was amazing. But if, if you're so freaked out, like it's not that hard to be productive because what else was I going to do? Go to the symphony? Right. I was so like, I was a little bit out of right. my mind. And you had to probably get it out of your head before you could even go to sleep. I mean, honestly, I would think it was that's more how like, I am anyway. Stuff. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like I would just work and work and work and then like, <laughs> pass out. And then like next day, same. So I was very, uh, it was very wow. intense. And the books kind of read like that. They have a kind of intensity. Mm -hmm. That is very, uh, as a prosecutor, you'll understand it. It's just that sense of like, you're just in a fast moving river and you're just trying to stay afloat. And that's how it felt at the time. Well, especially with the crazy level of crime that New York City was experiencing when you were writing this. Like you said, it would just be like an average, how many nine, murders nine a, day? a day? Yeah, so oh my, my daily routine was that I would go into police headquarters where I actually had an office, strangely. There was like a press pen you in did. police headquarters. So I'd like trundle in and I'd always call my husband or speak to my husband right before I went in and say like, what happened in sports? I'm not a sports person. And I'd be like, what happened in sports? And he'd be like, oh, the Marlins pitcher was amazing. <laughs> I'd be like, what's his name? Rodrigo. So I'd go in and I'd you go up to like the place where they, it's called uh, Department of Public Information. And they have these clipboards where all the homicides are listed. And I'd be flipping through the homicides, trying to find out what's gonna, what I think, what my hunch is gonna lead the paper for the day, like trying to figure out what's what. And I'd be like, saying to the police officers there, how about that Rodrigo, right? Like just throwing out some sports thing that I knew nothing about. And then they would be like, blah, 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 but back, you know, talking to me about the Marlins or something. I, I never had a second line, but sometimes the first line was enough to get, you know, get it going. And then, so you'd look at the clipboard and you would say, which homicide is gonna be most newsworthy? And then you would go get in your, my crappy car and drive out there and be like, what happened here? And um, lots of times it was a very uh, unsettled situation. Like it had happened at like five in the morning and I was there at like 9.30. And sometimes things were still kind of happening. Uh, and sometimes mm -hmm. the people who answered the door were the people who the cops were looking for. So there were all kinds of like <gasps> oh, interesting wow. moments. I remember one time on a Sunday morning, it's always Sunday morning was the worst because Saturday night was always like mayhem. <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting, I, oh, someone yeah. invites me to their house, very nice person. I realize as I sit down, it's kind of dim. I realize like, wow, this living room is full of AK-47, of automatic weapons. Like it is, oh my God. they're like everywhere on every on every surface and I reach back at something in the couch, I reach back and I realize it's a gun. And I'm like, okay. Oh my gosh. I'm in a very heavily armed crack house. This was obviously a crack kill, you know, a crack related killing. And I'm like, <laughs> right in the center of it. Oh man. Like, wow. People used to say to me, you should carry a gun. And I'd be like, oh my God, that is the last thing I need. Yeah. Like, in the time that I would be like <laughs> looking through my pocketbook for like the right. weapon, that's the time, I, you know, that's the time right. I should be running away. Like, should I get my recorder or my gun? I just wow. can't decide. Recorder every time. Yeah. <laughs> every time. What's it like to have started as a journalist working for papers versus what's it like now in journalism with newspapers? 
I don't know, just declining in such numbers, in such terribly horrifying numbers. Yeah, I didn't realize it, but these books are really about the last great days of newspapering. Uh, mm. You know, at the time, there was such a lot of updrafts in my industry. You could get fired on a Thursday and be hired by on, by Friday at a better job. So now, you know, if you're a journalist, you're just clinging on to what you can hold on to. And that's, you know, the Washington Post is doing layoffs, I think, next week. It's just it's just endless. Oh, and wow. there's no, there was also like old people who worked at newspapers. There were people in their fifties and sixties who like made a career there. And you knew that it, they, it's a terrible job and you gave up all your holidays and you, you know, scrapped together your life with your family and pay's not good, but there was a career and there was a mm -hmm. career pathway. And man, I just don't see that now. I just don't see that for young journalists. I think it's very hard for them. And uh, it's really become a, 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 a gay. And also it was a very like college kids and also kids, people who are sort of blue, co had blue collar backgrounds. And mm -hmm. I think the journalism was much better because there was an old expression, which was tell it to Sweeney, which is like enough <laughs> of your college BS, like enough of your gender. I've had an editor say this to me, enough of your gender studies, sophomore year course. Mm -hmm. Sweeney. <laughs> like, what does it mean if you have to tell to someone who doesn't agree with you? right? Who is coming from, who is coming from your plumber. Okay. And having to understand that your audience is not just like you, I think made better, made for better journalism. That said, journalism was very white and that's changing as well. So it's more, there's more uh, people who, who have less, who have had, not had a seat at the table, which I think is great, but at the same time, the industry's cratered. And at the same time, it's become an, to my ear, an echo chamber where elite opinions are recited and recited and recited again, that not that many people agree with in the great wide world, except a lot of people agree with right. in media circles. And I, fi I find that troubling and sad, really sad. It was different than what I signed up mm -hmm. for. And it was yeah. sad sad to mm -hmm. watch that disintegration mm -hmm. okay so i want to segue because i think we need to um peg this is the time midway we ask what's called the question in the bottle it's a question you might get to at the bottom of a bottle <laughs> as chrissy <laughs> and i have done many times <laughs> <laughs> all right okay so what's the weirdest thing you've ever eaten Knowingly? <laughs> Either way. That is awesome. I would say that just the weirdest in general, and it, hopefully you didn't know it was what it was and it was good. I think I'm going to ask like God when I get to the pearly gates. For <laughs> I'm going to be like, tell me the truth. What's the weirdest thing I ever ate? Because, right. you know. How do you know? Really Sometimes know? you didn't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I actually was just in Mexico City and I ate... Uh, lemon chili crickets really yeah they're that's well how were they crunchy crunchy and sort of chilly <laughs> they were fine i have a bowl of them downstairs i brought them back for thanksgiving since i was hosting i thought well here's my side of resentment to serve up i was like here that's some cricket <laughs> <laughs> like a conversation oh. piece. So they they weren't like soft on the inside or anything. No, they're that crispy. Would really they're gross fried me out they with were... chili and lime, lime, chili and lime, or lemon. Something. Okay. Yeah, it was pretty weird. I can see that. Pretty weird. I, I mean, so basically, you yeah, can just take weird. any flavor combo and put it in a cricket, and that's supposed to make make it palatable. Well, I think there's a lot of people who use yeah. crickets for and insects for uh, protein, especially in the. Mm. I was in the frontier area between uh, Mexico and Guatemala, like in the Mayan area, 
and you know the people are pretty a lot of people are subsistence farmers there and are farming mm -hmm. eating a lot of crickets it's like a pretty wow. standard thing yeah it's like lobster is like a bug in the water better but better than <laughs> that's what everybody says i know very very good down here we eat a lot of strange things because you know we have like alligator we eat that we you know turtle whatever but um conch but my daughter when she was in korea she ate like the worms just <laughs> bowl of worms and i was like oh my gosh she said they weren't bad she ate a whole she ate the whole bowl i was like gross <laughs> what about you kathy you know it's funny i just um actually told somebody at my office this today that my mother-in-law um my husband's family is from a pretty large ranch in the Black Hills, and so there's lots of wildlife. When my husband was growing up, was prone to, you know, put protein on the table, but would not tell him the source of the protein. And he became very, <laughs> very skeptical. And so even to this day, he will demand, what what is in this? So I am certain that I have at some point along the way had some muskrat or some badger mixed in with our chili. Um, so I don't, I am in Peg's world. I'll have to ask God that because I don't know, but I am certain and that she has done that. And we, we had a patient bring mm. pies today. A very lovely patient bring our staff a bunch of pies. And one of them, she said, I'm not going to tell you what kind it is. I want you to guess. And I was like, oh, I'm not doing that. I don't, I'm not, I, I'm happy trying different things, but I want to, I want to have the ability to make the choice. So I, I don't have the good yeah. answer. Did you ever find out what it was? No, I, I didn't. I came here to do this. So I'll, I'll check back in. I'm sure someone else was more, was braver than I was. They're beautiful yeah. pies. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. So um, both of my parents were educators. So I and I've dabbled a little bit myself. Um, plus, I have a lot of friends who are teachers. So I found that your work with the EFG accelerator that you mentioned earlier, um, very interesting. And I think our listeners would, too. So could you tell us a little bit about what it is and how you got started with it? Uh, yeah. So I when I was at Newsweek, I wrote back when Newsweek was a big thing. I wrote cover stories for them, and we used to do a cover story about um, Jesus right before Christmas. That was the mm. giant seller, and they would sell all the ads against the Jesus cover. And um, he knew this that this was where <laughs> the money came from, and it was just a huge seller. It was like always some Jesus-related topic, like the secret of Mary, or like you know Jesus's mm -hmm. final thoughts, or. <laughs> Something that, you know, I don't know, I never had to write it, thank God. But uh, I wrote this story, I was asked to write a story about about girls and and uh, education, because I they made me cover the education bit, even though I had covered crime and domestic terrorism, Newsweek was a very sexist place, and when I got there, they were like, you're a girl, you cover education. I was like, okay. And so, as one does, and so uh, asked me to write a story about girls, and how they struggle at school. And I had read all this Carol Gilligan stuff about how girls struggle to find their voice. And then I looked at the data because I'm kind of a data wonk. And all the data was like, oh my God, boys are really doing terribly at school, especially poor boys, especially rural white boys, especially poor black and brown boys, terrible. So I wrote this story that said, there's a problem with boys in school. And I'm mm -hmm. telling you, that cover outsold Jesus. <gasps> it was no. like- I'm probably going to get the bolt just for saying that. But like 
it actually it was like <laughs> it was like huge and i was like swatting around in black town cars going from like the today show to good morning yeah. America, like talking about this thing oh like, wow and it was kind of a surprise to me because i'm an ardent progressive feminist and but to i had to say this is actually yeah. happening like this is actually happening this is what the data shows and so from there, I got a Spencer Fellowship at Columbia. They were like, come up here to think your big thoughts for a year. We'll pay you. I was like, oh. Okay. <laughs> I was like, yes, I will. And I was <laughs> lecturing all around the country. On, oh, so then I wrote this book based on the cover story. It was a giant bestseller. So my life got really picked up speed. I wrote a second book about education. And then uh, someone at the EGF, uh, the Edwin Gould Foundation, reached out to me and said, did I want to work there? And I was like, what is that? Like, what kind of job is that? Like. You give away money. That sounds awesome. But it sounds like it would take like a day, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like here, right. I give away money once a month. I have to pay all my bills, but it takes me like 15 minutes. And I didn't realize how much discernment and relational mm. work goes into actually making, being a good, responsible, generous philanthropist. So they asked me to right. uh, work at the Edwin Gould Foundation, and we have an incubator for education-related nonprofits. And so a lot of the stuff that I did, I've done a lot of investigative reporting for a long time. And so a lot of the skills that I had, which is A, I like talking to people, B, I talk to everybody, C, I ask really impertinent questions and interrupt people all the time. And also, <laughs> and I guess when it comes to something I know really well, I'm pretty judgy like i'm pretty well read and i can see where people are falling where people's ideas are soft and where people's ideas are pretty edgy and exciting and so we started running this incubator and that's what i do now uh so i run a fellows program for early stage nonprofit uh leaders people who have a good yeah. idea about how to solve how to improve educational equity mostly in and around new york but also we've had some organizations that have served as national models for you know, and I've really grown mm -hmm. and become national organizations. So I'm pretty, it's been a pretty exciting turn. I, for, I've been doing that job for 11 years. And for the first five years, I did um, a lot of journalism. I wrote for the Atlantic and Politico and the New York Times Magazine, the New York Times. But uh, it's really hard to do both, <laughs> really hard to do two jobs. And so uh, I've, mm -hmm. and also the media world is really entangled now. So I've slowed down a little on the journalism stuff. And spend a lot of time doing the philanthropy work, which I am honored to do. And it's really quite joyous mm -hmm. and fun, challenging too. Yeah. And hilariously, if you read this book, The Stranger Strangers of the Night and its sequel in the Midnight Hour, the fact that anyone would let me around sums of money having <laughs> read those books are hilarious. <laughs> but you know, I've had these different lives. You know, I've I've had yeah. a really lively career and I try and say yes to as much as and as many opportunities as I can, because, you know, you know why, because we only get one shot and get one uh, time. Yeah. And there's right. times when I've had to choke back because I've had kids and of course, you know, or aging parents. And of mm -hmm. course, that's mm -hmm. been my privilege. Uh, but then there's times where you just have to go for it and you can go for it. And mm -hmm. I try to do that. Well, like this reissue, like go for it. How exciting is that? Go for it. Yeah. I love that. So one of the through lines I'm, I'm going to guess through your many echelons of your career has been writing. You've, sure. you must still, even in your current work, do a fair amount of writing. Um, and a lot of our 
our listeners are all voracious readers and many, many, many are writers. And so I was wondering if you had any thoughts or advice on writing that you could share. I do want to say that reading is everything. Uh, and it's not stealing if you read something really good and it affects your writing. It's called homage. So you should allow yourself to be influenced, like read the best writers that you can. I listen, I like a, I like trash too. Like, don't get me wrong. I like a good rip and read. <laughs> it's like, you know, a little cotton candy, right? But I also try and read the classics. Uh, and I try and really sit with the language and I try and really let the language affect me and I try and let it affect my writing. I try and uh, also be very uh, curt with my own editing process. Like if it's not working, it's not working. Okay. Just because you wrote it doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's good. Like you have nothing <laughs> good is ever written. It's always rewritten. And so mm -hmm. keep pushing, keep pushing to make yourself very precise and make yourself very clear about what it is you mean. And and so that has mm -hmm. been, and also don't wait for someone to tell you to start writing because no one's ever going to tell you to start writing. Like you just have to do it. Right. And I, I, I think it was Ann Patchett who said like, it's like when you're writing a novel, it's like, it's always kind of in your head. It's like the uh, you, it's like you turn on the bath water in the bath and you're filling up the bathtub and you go to do something else, but you're always kind of aware like where the level is in the bathtub. <laughs> like that's kind of how it is to be mm -hmm. in a novel. You're always like a little part of your brain that's actually over there thinking about the book. And that's just what you have to live with. Mm -hmm. oh, yep. Thank you for that. Well, that's, that's good advice. Thanks. Well, it's been such a pleasure, absolute pleasure having this wide ranging conversation. I know our listeners are going to want to reach out to you and learn more about you. What's the best way for them to do that? Well, uh, let's see. I am not a big social media person. I'm sorry to say I was once and then I got kind of burnt out on it. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn uh, and I am... My email is pegtire1 at gmail. If you want to write me and tell me how awesome my books are, I would happy be happy to hear that. Or if you just there want you to, go. Or if you want to reach out to me, and I they can probably find links to all your books, right? Yes, yes. On your and, website, uh, I'm also yeah. uh, and also my website is pegtire.com. But okay. it's easy to find. It's easy to find me. I don't hide. Um, well, and plus we'll put the links in our show notes yeah. so people can Great. find you quickly. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. Such a pleasure. Toast to the reissue. Of Strangers in the Night. Much success. I'll drink to that. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Subscribe to our podcast on our website, gameofbookspodcast.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, you can give us a five-star rating or review. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can watch and listen. On GameOfBooksPodcast.com, you can find all the information about what we talked about on this episode. And you can sign up for our newsletter and enter our fun contests and giveaways. We also post our stories and links on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hope to see you there. I can guarantee you that we had fun today. And we hope you did too. Cheers.